second, I want to invite up our speakers, but um, many of you guys know the Friesens. They've come to speak uh, at PCC a few times in the past, usually on marriage. And actually, I wanted to say about them, um, anytime anyone asks me for marriage advice, my number one piece of advice I actually got from the Friesens. We had just gotten married, and uh, Paul told this story. Basically, it was about how the Lord... um, encouraged him through the act of someone else just to change his perspective on circumstances. And he encouraged wives and husbands, but especially wives, to instead of having a critical attitude towards your spouse, to have a thankful attitude towards them and that that makes all the difference. And honestly, that piece of advice, the Lord used that in my life to change not just my marriage, but my whole perspective on life. To have instead of a critical um, attitude of what wasn't happening or what I wasn't receiving or something like that, to be thankful to the Lord. And that just really changed everything for me. So I'm so grateful for the wisdom that the Lord has given you guys and the faithfulness in which you're using the gifts that he's given you. So could you please welcome up Paul and Virginia Friesen. Thanks so much, Helen. Uh, That was what Paul had asked me to say that day uh, so that you would hear that message. So... (laughs) Uh, Listen, we are so glad to be here. Uh, Virginia and I are honored to fill the pulpit this morning uh, for Gary. Gary is one of the kindest, uh, I think most gifted preachers, theologically most sound, uh, an incredible orator. Uh, And he and uh, Anne and family now are on a very, very well-deserved sabbatical because they work Harder than probably any of you even realize. So I think that pretty much finishes everything he asked me to say uh, about him. So we'll get on now with our talk. Seriously, Gary didn't ask us to say anything. It just comes from the overflowing of our hearts of great, great, profound respect and love for the Gadini family and, and for the PCC family. We consider it just such a great privilege to be here with you, connecting with many of you that we've known through the years We are so grateful for a church that remains true to the gospel and proclaims it faithfully week by week by week and day by day by day. So we're just delighted to be here. It's an honor to be part of your series that's been going on, Hope That Moves. And this morning, as Helen said, we're going to be talking a little bit about parenting. And uh, some of you are parents. Some of you hope to be parents someday. Uh, But all of us know parents who need a lot of help. So uh, we're going to be looking at God's perspective on parenting, and parenting is really, really tough, and especially today, because even in the Christian community, there's so much out there, everybody telling you a different way. If you go into a Christian bookstore, for instance, you'll get books like this. There'll be a book, Growing Kids God's Way. Well, that'd be the... That must be the one. That's how I want to do Grow Kids God's Way. But then you look at next, and there's another book, Raising a Modern Day Knight. Well, that sounds good. Maybe I should do that instead. And then the next to it is parenting with love and logic. Well, that's it. Love and logic. That makes a lot of sense. And then you look at the next one, and it's grace-based parenting. Oh, maybe grace is what I need more than logic. And then you look at the next one. Oh, shepherding a child's heart. That's what I should be. I should be a shepherd to our children. All these other books don't have what I need. I should be a shepherd. And then here, having a kid by Friday. Now, that's basically a comedy book. I mean, that's a joke. But it's on the stand. And so you see all this, and then you see another one, and this is... Maybe the definitive one, Raising a Trailblazer by Dr. Virginia Friesen. But there are so many books out there, and there's a plethora of books. And if you read enough of them, you'll go crazy, and you'll be so t- totally confused. Today, we want to look at God's Word, 
and look at a passage that really talks about focus for us. But even if you're not a parent or not in that area right now, it is a word of God our Father and the hope that we have in Him. So let's pray as we begin again. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit this morning would be our teacher and that we would each uh, receive a word from you, whether it's a word of encouragement or challenge or whatever it is. And we thank you that you can do that. And so we commit ourselves to you in the powerful name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so the slides on all those different book titles, and you realize that we just skimmed the surface. That was maybe 1% of what is available to us. There's a plethora of resources. We have three grown daughters. Two of them with their husbands are raising children. We get asked regularly for advice about parenting, and we always have to preface what we say with, well, this is what we did when you were little. But it probably isn't what your doctor will tell you today, so make sure that you check with your own pediatrician. It's very confusing to know what to do. And well-meaning parents want to do the right thing. I was amused to read this little article written by a young mom. She said, when my daughter Allison was quite young, I told her to pick up her toys. She did it perfectly without complaining and without being told twice. I wanted to thank her and reward her, so I reached for the cupboard to get a chocolate chip cookie when a little voice in the back of my mind warned, didn't you read an article or a book that said you shouldn't use food as a reward or at risk giving your daughter an eating disorder? Immediately, I took off on a furious mental deliberation. I wanted to reward my daughter, but I didn't want to plant the seeds of a future disor- eating disorder. Should I just ignore the fact that she did something I wanted her to do and risk dashing her self-esteem? Or should I reward her, which some experts say could produce an entitlement attitude? But maybe... I could reward her with something other than food. Maybe I could take her out for a walk. But it was noon, and I, nev- and I read never go out at high noon lest your child develop skin cancer. <laughs> or maybe we could go to Baskin-Robbins, but no, that would be food too. My wacky internal debate ended when my little three-year-old looked up at me and asked, Mommy, are you going to share your chocolate chip cookie with me, or are you just going to eat it all by yourself? <laughs> Great, I thought. Now Allison's probably going to grow up with feelings of insecurity since her mother is so mentally unstable that she cannot decide whether she should just give her a stupid chocolate chip cookie for picking up her toy. Don't we all relate to that on some level? It feels like wherever we turn, there have been warnings issued about what we might think is the right thing to do. So where do we go? This morning we want to go to God's Word in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, and the English Standard Version we read, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Kind of a dismal scene, right? Sort of uplifting way to start sermon on this beautiful summer day. But then comes verse 4, and two of the most important words that we will ever read in Scripture, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved 
through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this morning, we want to look at three things. First, our mess. Secondly, our hope. And thirdly, our purpose. First, our mess. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Does this passage not describe today's society or what? Uh, We are dead. We are people that are dead towards Christ. We're not following him. We're following the godless culture of our world. We're denying our bodies nothing that bring them pleasure. We're altering our minds with drink and drugs. We're an angry people with anger just under the surface. The passage says without Christ, we are not just doing poorly. We're not just doing not quite as well as we could. It says we're dead. We're spiritually dead. And our children, they're not just sick. They don't just have a cold. Without Christ, they are spiritually dead. We're in a culture that is in rebellion against God's desire for us, and we're reaping that. All of these things have to do with our rejecting his authority. Now, when you hear the word authority, most of us, that's not a warm and fuzzy word. I don't know when the last time you were pulled over for a traffic violation, but when you saw the lights come on or the siren, you probably didn't go, oh, I am so thankful. I almost was doing something that could have harmed me, and this nice man stopped me. No, there is something in us that rebels against authority, and our children are that way. Who said you could tell me what to do? If you have teens, we hear that. A teen may say to you, I didn't choose you to be my parents. And then you say, well, I prayed for a child, and I didn't get the one I prayed for either. So, you know, we're okay, you know. No, there's this rebellion that comes. The lyrics today that teens are listening to, I can't even read them. They're violent. They're sexually explicit. Not like when I was young. We didn't have problems with authority when I was young. It's your generation, the young people's generation. Our lyrics were pure. I mean, Lay, Lady, Lay, Lay Across My Big Brass Bed, I think was an advertisement for Simmons Beauty Rest Mattress, right? <laughs> no. Uh, we as adults, uh, we're drinking too much. We're watching movies that we shouldn't be watching. We're reading stuff we shouldn't. We have destructive anger in our lives. The passage says which you were all part of. We are a culture careening towards destruction. We're like a train that's running out of control, and unless something happens, it's going to destroy itself. That's the third station. We passed without stopping. Governor, why doesn't somebody stop this train? I'm sure the authorities are taking appropriate measures to deal with this situation. We just need to remain calm. You remain calm. I'm going to worry about what happens when we run out of track and we crash into the wall. Jonathan! Is that the train?
yet? No, it'll be here any second. What do you think? I think he just fainted. I mean, you're on the edge of your pew. I can tell. What's going to happen? It's Superman. And you hear Lois Lane. She's looking. Everybody's terrified. She says, it's Superman. Everything's going to be okay. See, we live in a world, a culture that is careening towards destruction, and something better than Superman is here. And it takes place, and this is the hope, but God. But God who is rich in mercy. Okay, so here we're going to talk about hope, the whole theme of the series that you've had. But people hope in a lot of things, right? I mean, it's a word that we use very often. I hope this happens or I hope I get this. And for many of us, we actually believe the messages from our culture, which says that our hope actually is bound up in things we can accomplish. Stanford is having their graduation today. Last night, its graduate students graduated. There are many people who walk across that stage today believing that their hope is in that piece of paper that they have because they are now of one of the elite of the world. They are a Stanford grad, their ticket to a hopeful future. There are many of us who believe that as long as we stay at the fitness center long enough and our bodies are ripped, our hope is going to be in our very ripped body because we are going to be a part of an elite group in our culture. If we can buy a house in the right neighborhood, if we can develop a portfolio that is better than the next guy's, there are all sorts of things that promise us hope in our culture. We do a little bit of work with the NFL. We are from New England. You Gordon students, look us up when you're in the area. Um, But year by year, we do a Bible study with the New England Patriots, helping them understand that their hope is not on the football field, but that it actually is in this God who calls them by name. We were at a conference with this group, and Francis Chan spoke. We've been at the same conference for 16 years, and every speaker stands up and says, you are so strategically placed in this world to use your position, and it's such an honor to be with you. Francis Chan stood up, and he said his first words were, I just need to tell you I feel so sorry for you. Gasp in the room and then a pin drop silence. He said, because you think you have everything and the world around you tells you you have everything, that you have reached the pinnacle of success because you are in the NFL. It will be so hard for you to believe that your hope actually is in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The NFL isn't the only one who has a corner on that, though, right? We all believe that there's something that can deliver the hope that we long for. I hate to break your bubble, but even if the Golden State Warriors bring home the world championship, your hope will be short-lived in them. Do you realize that? We speak from experience from from New England. (laughs) Go Warriors. We are absolutely with you. (laughs) 
But I want to just tell you that there is all of these forms of hope are actually false hope. They're non-sustainable. They're transitional. They're going to evaporate. They will not deliver what the depth of our hearts long for. In my new favorite devotional called New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp, and I unashamedly give a plug that you should all get this, this is what he has to say about hope. He said, you can search for hope horizontally in the situations, experiences, physical possessions, locations, and relationships of everyday life. But there are two problems with looking for hope horizontally. First, all of these things suffer from some degree of brokenness. They are a part of the problem because they are. They are unable to deliver what you are seeking. Secondly, these things were never made to be the source of your hope, but to be fingers that point you to where your hope can actually be found. So our, our hope is in God. And, but the interesting thing is it says, but God... And you'd think it would say, but God who is strict in doctrine or God who is, you know, strict in rules or God who, but it says God who is rich in mercy. That's the redemption. It's God who is rich in mercy. Uh, Webster defines mercy as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. God certainly has that power but it is God who is rich in mercy who has come to redeem us. I'm sure many of us are familiar with the story of the prodigal son where the um, young man demanded his family inheritance and went off and squandered it. And we love that story because of the symbolism, the imagery that is presented in God the Father being one who is waiting and watching for us. A modern-day prodigal son story comes from Floyd McClung, the founder of Operation Mobilization, in his book, The Father Heart of God. Let me share it with you. The story is of a young Asian man named Sawat. He came from a Christian family in his village. When village life became dull, Sawat headed to the city where he became involved in a sordid lifestyle. He prospered for a time, but like the prodigal, hit on hard times. He ended up living beside a rubbish dump. When he had left home, the last words Sawat's father had spoken to him were these, I am waiting for you. Would these words still be true after all that Sawat had done? He decided to write a letter in which he asked his father's forgiveness. The next Saturday night, he would be on the train that stopped in his village. He wrote to his father, if you are still waiting for me, would you please tie a cloth on the tree at the front of our house? As the train approached the village, Sawat became increasingly anxious. What if there was no cloth? He told his story to a fellow passenger who had noticed his agitation. The passenger agreed to look for the cloth on the tree, as Sawat could not bear to look. The passenger leaned over to Sawat and said, Sawat, there is not one cloth on the tree. The whole tree is covered with cloths. Sawat looked out the window and saw his old father dancing up and down, waving a piece of cloth. When the train stopped and Sawat got out, he threw his arms around him with tears of joy. His father said, I have been waiting for you. This is a God of mercy who loves us. And we need as parents to have as our highest goal to introduce our children to that God. That is their only hope. Lots of good principles of parenting, but it comes down to this. But God, who is rich in mercy, are we going to embrace him? We have three daughters who are now in their 30s, and we're very thankful they are all following the Lord and serving him. 
you asked us about what is the secret to where they are today, we would point to the day they fully gave their lives to Christ, each of them. We tried to do a good job as parenting, but we failed many times. But, but God, but God. One of our daughters in Philippines, and she just called yesterday, and she was encouraging us in an area that we're struggling in. I thought, isn't God good? That wasn't because of our parenting. That was because of God in her life. That's the greatest gift we can give our children. Our verses, a couple, our life verses, 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. If that's truly our greatest joy, then that becomes our focus. And we as parents must make our first priority to create an atmosphere which is most conducive for our children wanting to walk in the way of the Lord. Let's say that one more time. Our greatest responsibility as parents is to create an atmosphere most conducive to our children wanting to walk in the way of the Lord. So you realize we can't force our kids to believe, right? Some of you might have been raised in homes, you were raised in the church, and your parents were absolutely determined that you would believe. What we all know at the end of the day is that the only one who can make a decision to follow Christ is myself. No one can make that decision for me. That's the good news and bad news of parenting, I will say. The good news is that, the bad news is that we can't make them believe, and we would all love to do that. But the good news is that it frees us to be fully surrendered ourselves to Christ, knowing that ultimately it will be his work in their lives that draws him, them to himself. Our part is to continue to try to create that atmosphere where they see an authentic, life-giving, vital reality of Jesus in our lives. So how do we do that? Well, first we take from here that we are to create an atmosphere which is rich in mercy. Think of yourself as a child and you think about your parents. Would mercy be the first word that came when you think about who your parents are? Or if you're a parent and your children were asked, what word comes to mind? Would it be mercy? Or maybe it would be, I never quite can measure up. Or they're always pushing me to do better. Or, see, the prodigal son story that we referred to, the the father, even though he has been insulted and injured and everything by his son, every day he stands looking. He is a father full of mercy, hoping that his son will come back. And it's interesting, the son came back. And the reason the son came back, because he knew his father was a father full of mercy. We taught at Gordon College, Gordon Conwell Seminary once on this, and we asked the students, how would your father respond, your earthly father, if you were in this story? I never forget, a man said, I would never go home. I would never go home. But we have a God who is rich in mercy, and he is challenging us as parents to be rich in mercy. But isn't it hard to always be rich in mercy? I mean, well-meaning parents are trying to train their children, which means that we have to confront bad behavior or sinful actions or childish irresponsibility. Part of our job is to raise them so that they make a positive contribution to this world instead of a negative one. I remember when our middle daughter was seven. She had just finished cleaning the bathroom. She asked me to come in and check it out. I walked into the bathroom and I said, oh, Lisa, the bathroom looks great. Thanks so much for cleaning it. But in the time it took me to say that, my eyes had wandered to the faucet where I noticed that the toothpaste splatters were still on the silver faucet. Quite noticeable to me, obviously missed by her. So I continued with, but the next time you clean the bathroom, don't forget to clean the faucet. And I hadn't really gotten faucet completely out of my mouth when I turned back to look at her only to see giant tears running down her cheeks. 
it's um, still a very painful moment for me because what she said, I said, oh, Lisa, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to discourage you. I just want to help you clean the bathroom better. And she said, oh, I know, Mommy, I know. It's just I never really can do it good enough. Oh, it was a knife in my heart then, and it's still a knife in my heart to realize that that tendency actually is still on me. But I will tell you that day, God spoke to me in a very clear way. Parents, do not exasperate your children. I was on the verge of exasperating my children, causing them to lose heart because I wanted them to get it right. Now, my desire for them getting it right is probably not the wrong thing, but it was how I was going about that. I would say that day, Lisa did not experience me as being rich in mercy, but is probably bordering on legalism. But God, being rich in mercy, this is a very, very important message for all of the well-meaning parents in this room who want to do the best for their children. If we don't lead with mercy, we will very likely discourage them. So we lead with mercy, but then we also lead a life that's fully devoted to Christ. And this is so important. The statistic is out there that 80 to 90 percent of high school seniors, when they leave, evangelical churches are walking away from their faith today. It's a very sobering statistic. One of our friends who's worked in youth ministry his whole life, he says it's because they look at their parents. And he said, I don't want to grow up and be like that. Son, when I came to Jesus, it was the happiest day of my life. I've never had more joy. I hope someday, when you're as old as I am, you have as much joy as I. What kid's going to want to do that? You know, like he said, if you've got the joy of the Lord in your heart, would you mind notifying your face? You know, it, 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 it's not that we're laughing all the time, but there should be a vitality in our life. Our kids should be looking and say, I want to be like mom when I grow up. I want to be like dad when I grow up. I want to have a marriage like theirs. I want because they're following Christ and it is so exciting. Life is so vital for them. Why would I do anything else like and live a life like so many people who aren't experiencing life to the full? So we're, we're rich in mercy. We live before them. And then we are loving them unconditionally. And unconditional love can all of a sudden sound to us like, oh, my goodness, so do you throw out the rules? Is that what that means? Are we just always indulgent parents? Are we just permissive? Do they just need mercy? You'll see in Scripture that truth and grace are almost always partnered together. And so this, this third area of us loving them unconditionally is not to be confused with enabling sinful behavior to flourish under your watch in your home. See, the goal of God's mercy is to bring us to repentance and a relationship with him. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, the goal of mercy is not just so I do anything and get forgiveness every day and just live like I want. No, the goal of mercy is to move us to repentance so that we walk according to God's ways and experience all that God has for us. Hebrews 10 says the Lord disciplines those that he loves. So if we're a mess, God has met us with his mercy, what, what do we do? Well, how do we respond? Well, it's the third point, and that is our purpose, created in Christ Jesus for good works. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, we're not saved by good works, but we are created to respond to God's grace and mercy in our life with good works. Sort of an interesting deal, isn't it? For by grace you be saved. It, it's not of ourselves. Oh, but now that you're saved, you should be doing good works. So the good works is a response to understanding the mercy of God. And we have been those who have been the recipients of God's mercy, and therefore our children hopefully will be the recipients of mercy in their lives as well. Therefore, our deepest need or deepest desire for our children must be that they walk in good works created for them. We need to be intentional as parents. How are we helping that happen? How are we helping our children develop and love the Lord? We are Californians by birth, but we've lived in Boston for 24 years now. When we moved to Boston, we realized New Englanders are a little different than the average Californian. They are obsessed with education. I mean, they enroll their kids before they're even born on a waiting list to get in the right preschool because they've got to go to Harvard. I know you're an elite group here, but a lot of Californians, they just need to read enough to see the surf support, you know, surf report. I mean, it's sort of like education doesn't seem quite as big in California. First sermon I ever gave in New England was I said, it seems you people are more interested that your children get into Harvard than heaven. It's the last time I ever preached at that church. But, uh, <laughs> but it's true. It's true. They're very intentional about their education of their children, but not very intentional about their spiritual development of their children. What is the most important thing we can do? Ask your children what's the most important thing, that they get into Stanford, they make the varsity team, they have good friends, they're happy. What we want our children to say, boy, mom and dad, more than anything else, the thing they want me to do is to follow the Lord and embrace him fully. Okay, so what does that mean practically as we kind of wrap this up? The first practical handle we want to give you is make sure that you're keeping your marriage alive. And we recognize that some of you are not married, some of you are single parents, some of you haven't been married yet. Some of you um, are widowed. We understand that. But if you are married, keep your marriage alive. Keep it growing in Christ-likeness. There will probably be nothing more convincing to your children of the reality of Jesus than seeing a marriage that's working. They're surrounded by marriages that are not working. Everybody's trying to figure it out. That may seem like a strange tip to give you as you leave on a parenting sermon. But it's very, very intentional. We spend an awful lot of our time counseling with families and with marriages, working day and night to help convince them of the goodness of working for their marriage. Keep it a priority. Keep investing in it. Ratchet back some of what you're investing in your children if you're cheating your marriage in order to give your children the very best that you have to offer. They will benefit more from a healthy, vital, growing, imperfect marriage than they will from another set of lessons. And then we've said it before, but we'll say it again. Do all that you can to create this atmosphere that helps them want to follow Christ. Put them in places where they're exposed. Some of you aren't fun parents. You're just boring. Uh, And and let them see some fun Christians. Uh, Get them involved with people who are vital and fun and 
There, yeah, there we are, right back there. I can see people pointing somebody out. Okay, that's good. Uh, but do all that we can. Get them in vital churches like you are here. Get them in experiences that they have that just help them fall in love with Jesus. There is nothing more important as a parenting tool. And then make decisions as a parent now that you will not regret 10 years from now. Boy, it is so, so easy to miss the present, isn't it? And one of the challenges we have in a world that offers us more opportunities than we will ever be able to take advantage of is what do we do? How do we use our time now? And many of us live in places that cause us to miss the obvious or to miss the things that we cannot do again. One of the things that um, I just used as a rule of thumb when we were raising our girls was anytime a major opportunity came along, at one point it was getting a master's degree at Gordon-Conwell for free because Paul was a full-time student. The question I asked myself then was adding 10 years to each of our daughters' lives, which at that time would have made them 16, 18, and 21, and looking back, what would I most regret having missed And I realized that the master's program at Gordon-Conwell would always be there. It's still there today. But my children wouldn't. They would not be a part of what was happening 10 years from now in the way that they were now. It's very easy to miss the present. And we're going to encourage you, especially in the area of parenting and in your marriage, take advantage of what you have now. Invest now. Seize the moment. It will help reduce the potential of you living with regrets in the future your children whether they admit it or not long to have you involved in their life we have a dear friend who just turned 50 something a couple days ago and virginia went to visit her and she said all i want today is for my father just to call me just to call me and say happy birthday that's all i want Uh, we never outgrow the desire for our parents to care for us and connect with us we've been counseling a couple who um, sent us this plaque, but God. Uh, He was a principal of a high school, uh, an elder at their church. They, as a couple, led the youth group. Uh, They're a model Christian family looked up by everybody in their community. And then he had an affair. Had an affair with one of the teachers at the school that his children went to. He got fired immediately, but his children still went every day with people making comments about their dad who had an affair with one of the teachers. They got dismissed from being the youth leaders at the church, and they continued going to the church for a while, but the people in the church seemed to take it out on the kids on what their father had done, and so church life became very uncomfortable, and it was a mess. They sent us this because he decided that he should repent, confess, She decided that she should forgive, and they did a lot of work at rebuilding trust and rebuilding their marriage. After a year of working on this, he got an offer in another geographic area, and now he's a principal, and they're just starting out again. And they just said, we just want you to remember, no matter what the mess is, but God can change everything. And that's what we want to leave you with. We don't know who you are. We don't, as some of you as individuals in your individual life are saying, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I'm like the first part of this. Some of you have marriages or relationships. Some of you who are dating, you may be dating the wrong person. And you're going, this is a mess. This isn't leading towards God. It's leading away from God. Some of you as marriages are struggling. Some of you, your kids are struggling. We want to give you hope. But God, God who is rich in mercy can change all of this.
he can make us to be those people who honor him and honor each other. So may this be our greatest desire and joy for ourselves and for our children, that even though our lives are a mess, we serve a God of mercy who has given us a purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is so true, so applicable today. And we just acknowledge that often the messes we're in are because of our own choices and that we have walked away from you. But we thank you that you don't walk away from you, from us, that you are rich in mercy. But you love us so much that your mercy propels us to do those things which are best for us and to walk according to your good works that you've prepared for us. So we pray that you'd help us to do that, not just for ourselves, not even just for our marriages or for our children, but for a watching world that desperately wants to know, is there any hope in this world? And so we give you thanks and ask that you would help us to live in such a way that people will investigate you, look to you, the God of mercy, the God of hope. This we pray in Christ's name. to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.